Good morning again. It's good to see everyone. Um, we're going to be in the book of Revelation today, Revelation 19 and 20. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. In a few seconds, we'll read from it, and it'll be on the screen if you don't have your copy of God's Word here. Um, you ever notice our culture is inundated with love songs? Some good, some bad, some sweet, some not so sweet, some all over the place. And, uh, you know, you got a little Whitney, you know, ah, yeah, I will always love, you know, that, that, you know what I'm talking about. Love songs, loves, they're everywhere. You won't have to hear me sing again, I promise. I'm sorry. Now, why does, why do love songs come about? How, why, why? It's because the common language that we have can't adequately express the feelings that we have. And so poetry happens. Songs happen. It, it's just, it's just kind of comes out. It's a heightened expression of these feelings. And you have to say something better than, you sure are pretty. I like you. Okay? It comes out like the poem I wrote for Amy. Just, she didn't even know I wrote this. It's the first time. Roses are red, violets are blue. You're smoking hot and I love you. I mean, that, there you go. But there's been a lot better poetry written. I know you're shocked by that. And I want to give you an example of heightened language. And I was going to read the poem, but I, I would not do it justice. So I think we have a video. We'll see. Sonnet number 18 by William Shakespeare. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely, and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, And summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, And often is his gold complexion dimmed, And every fair from fair sometime declines, By chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, Nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, Where in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, So long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Now that's pretty good. That's better than my poem. I just let you know that. And you probably got lost in the middle there, but shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You know why I didn't read that, right? Because that guy has a much, much more cool voice, okay? Right? And that wouldn't do <laughs> Dost thou compare to it? I mean, that's not going to work for me. But you get that. There's such a deep, abiding affection that heightened language has to be used. And whether you get it or not, sometimes you can't express adequately what you feel until you enter into this genre. And let me tell you, there is one book in the New Testament that has to speak about the greatness of the return of Christ and his restoration of the, the, the broken cosmos. And it's the book of Revelation. Now, it's a weird, strange book. There's seven-headed dragons. There's the opening of the seal. The Apostle John, he's on Patmos. He's been exiled because of the great persecution that is happening to Christians in the first century A.D., and he's been sent to live out his days on a prison colony, and he's in the Spirit, and he has this revelation of Christ's return. And it is trippy, buddy. 
in preparing for this message, I read the whole book a couple of times, and it's there's opening of seals, and there's there's these it's it's there's a a a harlot riding a, riding a giant beast. There are it's the strangest things, and and sometimes they can get us kind of confused. If we're honest. What have we been doing for, through our series of the Bible, the story? We've been following the storyline of the Bible. Why have we been doing it? Because sometimes the Bible can be confusing. And if you have a story like we've talked about creation, God made everything fall. He made it all good. We fell. We rebelled against God. We sinned against him. And because of that, death entered into the world. But Christ, but God has been working, and ultimately through Christ, to bring about redemption so that all people might be saved. And then through Christ, at the end, he will return. Death will be defeated. His people will be with him. Those who are not with him will be judged, and his judgments will be right. And the book of Revelation at the end, we, we can see this. Even if you don't get the part that happens in the middle, because it can be confusing, when you get to 19 or 20, you can start seeing the fog clear, and you see that Jesus is coming back, and he's coming as the rightful king and the judge. Look in, verse, look in Revelation 19, verse 11. And, and this is John writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. This is, horses in general are pretty spectacular entities, beings, but this white horse would be striking. In fact, all of these images that you see here of the white horse and the robes, they harken back to Rome. And when a Roman leader would, would win a battle, he would march into Rome and they would have everyone who could adorn themselves in white robes. And when Caesar, one of the first times that Julius Caesar came into Rome, he rode in on white horses, pulled by, on a chariot pulled by white horses. And so this was, a, this was a scene of victory, and it's a scene of warlike victory. So what happens? Saw so the heavens opened up and a white horse the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. Jesus, throughout the book of Revelation, has been called the one who is faithful and true. Then it says, and in righteousness, which means rightly he does, he judges and makes war. This is a very different picture of the Jesus in the Gospels, right? The Jesus in the Gospels, what is he doing? He's washing feet. The Jesus in the, in the Bible, he's being persecuted, He's Jesus in the Bible, the Jesus in the, 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 the New Testament, Jesus before this situation, the Jesus of the Gospels, we see him, he's the suffering servant. He's the one who is being reviled, rejected, he's having his beard plucked, he's being beaten. That is a lowly Jesus who came to serve and to bear sins. But the Jesus that has ascended and is coming will not come meek and mild anymore. He will come riding on a white horse and he is going to be faithful and true, and he will judge rightly, and he will make war. This is a very different picture than our precious moments Jesus. You know what I'm talking about. Or the British Jesus of all those TV shows. Or the Jesus that is just kind of just aloof. And, and this Jesus that we see coming in Revelation is one who's going to make things right. Now, I want you to know something. This book is written in heightened language, in poetic language, in apocalyptic language, and in prophetic language, as much like Ezekiel and some of the other books of the Bible. 
It's written in a way that is supposed to be stark. It's supposed to be a stark picture of what's happening. And it's meant for us to see the true nature of who Jesus is. In verse 12, it says this, his eyes are like a flame of fire. You've probably seen eyes like the flame of fire when your mom looked at you when you were doing something wrong. Right? I know that feeling. My mom's a very nice lady, but you do something wrong. When I was a little kid, she'd give you that look, and you, like, melt immediately. Okay? Anybody ever had that? You're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I never got in trouble. Liars. The eyes, his, his eyes are like flames of fire. It's on purpose. It shows, it shows the intensity, but also shows he can look in. And fire is a way of, of in, the, in the scriptures, of judgment, and it's a way of cleansing. And so Jesus can see right in to people. So he's had these flame of fire. And on his head are, are many diadems. That means crowns. It means it's showing that he is the rightful ruler. And his name, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. That's just cool. And he's got a name that only, only the Lord Jesus knows. In verse 13, Jesus is seen. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Are you seeing the fact that this is an odd vision? This is a stark vision. This guy on a white horse, eyes flaming, and he's sitting there and he's wearing a robe, most likely a white robe, and it is dipped in blood. That's a wild picture, isn't it? You saw that guy on the street, you would cross the street to walk away from that. This is a wild picture. His robe being dipped in blood has two significances. The first one is this. Every time you see Jesus, you see him as the glorified lamb in in Revelation chapter 4, and and all all the elders and all the angels are singing, holy, worthy is the lamb. He is a lamb that looks like he was slain. Everything about Christ and his glory, we see it coming through his suffering. So the robe dipped in blood signifies the fact that he is the one who died, so that that, those might have life. And not not only that, the robe dipped in blood shows that he is coming for judgment. We go on, and we looked at this. It says this, and his name, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. John would use this in John chapter 1. He would say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You remember that? So this is, again, we've identified the man on the horse. It's Jesus, and he's coming to judge, and he's got flaming eyes, and he is clothed in this robe dipped in blood, talking about his sacrifice and talking about him coming in judgment, and he is the word of God, the revelation, the speaking of God. In verse 14, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. It's a white army. White robes, white horses, meant to show their holiness and purity, meant also to show them being on their white horses, they're coming for war. And then it goes on and it says this, and from his mouth, now I don't know how this looks. This is a wild picture. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike, um, with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with an rod of iron, and he will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is a terrifying picture. The Jesus who came as the suffering Messiah when he returns, he will return as the rightful king and the judge. 
We don't like that. Our favorite phrases in the English language seems to be, don't judge me. You don't know me. You, you don't know me. I think the most famous Bible, Bible verse or partial Bible verses ever quoted to anybody ever is, judge not lest ye be judged. You will be judged. You will be. And I'm going to show you from Scripture, not only is Jesus the rightful one, but why he's right to judge us. Yay, great Memorial Day service, Matt. Woo! Yeah! Uplifting. Hold on, because there is time. But you need to know the facts about this Jesus who's coming. In the, the passage, after this, after this scene of Jesus in Revelation 19, there's a millennium that happens. There's a whole bunch of debate about that. We're going to skip over that, not because it's unimportant, but because it can hide or make, um, it, could, it could be a screen for us to not actually deal with the fact that Jesus is coming as a judge, okay? So what happens is, from this passage, verse 16, it goes down, and in the first part of chapter 20, there's a thousand-year reign of Christ, and then we have the defeat of Satan in Revelation 20, verse 10. Revelation 20, verse 10, and we'll have that up there for you in just a second. Revelation 20, verse 10 says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown down into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. This beast is signified as the serpent. The serpent, if you look at the storyline of the Bible, is the one who first deceived Eve. This is talking about Satan, a fallen angel who has made it his business to rob God of his glory, but God will not be robbed of his glory. And he said, in Christ, he will crush the head of the serpent. Well, bruise his heel. Jesus bore, Jesus bore the pain and suffering of sin on the cross, suffering and torture, but in so doing, and in his resurrection, he crushed the work of Satan. Now, Satan is still harassing and around, but there's coming a day when Christ returns, where he will throw him in a pit of fire and sulfur, and his day is done. That's going to be a good day, when the harassment of the evil one will no longer be here. Now, verse 11 John writing, he says, then I saw a great white throne. Remember, Jesus come, great white horse, robe dipped in blood, all of his army that's with him, obviously the saints, they're in white, the horses are white. It's showing victory in a Roman sense, also showing purity, that God's judgments are pure, and he's sitting on a great white throne. And then it says something else. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. It's like, a, like even the sky and the earth are afraid of Jesus. They're running away from what's coming. And then verse 12. And again, John is on this island, maybe by himself, maybe with other prisoners, and he's having these visions. Can you imagine the first time he had it, even though it was the Lord, he was probably like, I'm not eating whatever I had the night before again. You ever had one of those dreams? So this has happened. He's seen this great harlot. He's seen this stuff. He sees Jesus returning, which is probably great. And then he sees the dead raised, all walking dead. Then I saw a great white throne, or verse 12, it says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. First off, note this, the great and small. Maybe you thought about this. There's how many, like seven billion people in the world, I think? 
I think I'm right. There are 7 billion people in the world. I am one person. I live in a small town. And I'm one of the 7 billion people. How on earth does God care about what I do and what, if I violate his law? And if I, the facts are that the great and the small, the rich, the well-known, and the small and obscure, every nation, every person will be brought before Christ at his throne. And there's not a person too great not to have to, to pay the consequences for their actions, and there's not a person too small that they will go overlooked. If Jesus cares about the sparrow that falls from heaven, which he does, he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, that our, the Father cares about that, he cares about the numbers of the hairs on our head, or lack thereof in some cases. If he knows that, then he, there is nothing too small for him to know. We use that as a comfort, but can also be something very scary. And they saw the dead, great and small, everyone standing before the throne, and the books were opened. What are these books? Look on verse 12. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you got two sets of books, okay, represented by these two these books I had up here, okay? I have many large books, and I thought, perfect. We're talking about books. I'll bring books so you can see that there's going to be books or scrolls opened up at the last day. There's going to be a set of books over here that has all of mankind's deeds, every person. That's a big book. It's heaven, folks. That's how we get a big book. He created the world by saying, let there be. The size of the book is not a big deal. It's going to be there. It's going to have everything, and he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he knows. He's great and small. He knows what we've done. He knows our lives. He knows what's going on. He knows every little detail. He knows our lies. He knows the truths we tell. He knows it all, and great and small we will stand, and they're in books. Jesus would say, a very scary, very scary couple of words in Luke 12, 2 to 3. Jesus said that nothing is covered up in the last day. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing. You know what that means? There's not anything that will be hidden. Jesus says in Luke 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, this is so frightening. Therefore, Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms will be, will be proclaimed from the housetops. These books got the info. They're going to be proclaimed. And so what happens? And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. That is really important. If you have your own Bible or if you got an app, highlight this, okay? The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Why are they judged? Because of what they had done. Okay? Follow me. Verse 13, and the sea gave up their dead who were in it. I told this story last week. It's Bear's telling again. One of my uh, seminary professor, um, or the president of our seminary, his son was looking up on the internet Two things, helicopter interiors and shark attacks. And, if I, and, and this was very odd to my seminary or to the president of my seminary. So we asked his son, why are you looking up helicopter interiors and shark attacks? 
And apparently it had to do with a question about the last day and the resurrection, which is wild. And that's only a seminary professor's kid or a pastor's kid would be thinking about that. And he said this, if I die in a helicopter crash over the ocean and were to be eaten by a shark, would I be raised on the last day? And how would God, how would that happen? I don't know, first off, but this says even the sea will give up their dead. The, the sea is, is a mysterious place. If you go to some of the great, the, the, the deepest points in the sea, you will see animals that boggle the mind, animals that can't see or animals that emit some kind of fluorescent light so they can't see and hunt. Some of the deepest, darkest places in the world, there is no, you get this, there is no place you can hide from God. None. The sea will give up their dead who are in it, and death in Hades, death in Hades is two-way talking about death. We talked about this last week. They gave up their dead who were in them, and they were judged. Death is judged. I mean, we're not talking like Grim Reaper looking death, okay? Like we're not Looney Tunes in it here, okay? But the very concept of death is judged. Then what happens? Each one of them, according to what they had done, so the people who were right, they had been judged. In verse 14 it says, death in Hades were thrown into the fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, at this point, there's a ton of things swirling around. What are these two books, or these two sets of books? We've got the book of life, and we've got this book that has all the deeds. We've got this lake of fire. It's called the second death. It's going to be eternal. It's for death. It's for everybody to, to, to be there whose name is not written in the book of life. How can we make sense of this? First off, I want you to know this. Jesus is coming. When he does, death will be defeated. When he's coming, his people will rise and be with him. No matter if you're dead, no matter where you are, there's nothing that can keep his people from him. However, I want you to know this. When he comes, he will be the rightful king. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And when, you do, when that confession is not just a, a, a submission that is, is angry anymore or a submission that is done with teeth gritted, it is a submission that is, you're right. Why? The first book, the first sets of books, which are represented by these books right here, they contain all of the deeds that any of us, whether great or small, whether well-known or not so well-known, have ever done. You are not judged by the fact that all of us, because of our first parents, are bent towards sin and we have a sin nature. You're not judged by that. Do you know what you're judged by? What you've done. What you've done. How many of us like to blame somebody else for what's going on in our lives? I like to. Well, the reason I failed that test was because the teacher did not give an adequate study guide. I remember, I mean, I would rail against this. Then there was stuff on that test that should not have been there, and it's their fault. Mm. Why were you, <laughs> this happened to me several times. Matt, why were you going 95 through Atlanta? Well, all the other traffic was going. I was just trying to keep pace with the other cars. Well, I had this perfect incident that shows this very clearly that we are accountable for what we do. When I was in seminary, there was a, a book this thick that was our style guide for how you had to write papers. Yeah, it was fun, okay? 
and it had your paper had to match this style guide in the footnotes and in the margins and in everything. And if it did not, they were to give you points off of your paper. I had been through half my seminary career, and nobody had ever gone like, your margins are bad. You know why? Because the people weren't jerks. But I ran into a jerk. I know. Even at seminary, there are jerks. And this one jerk, I got my paper back, and it was a good paper. Good paper, but your margins were awful. You get a C. And I was like, dude, I was mad. I wanted to murder him dead. Like, and then I started looking at it. And I was like thinking, I'm going to go to the dean of students, and this is ridiculous, and da-da-da. And I got the manual out, and I was going to go. I was getting all my stuff together because it was going to be like one of those like law scenes. Where I was like, you can't handle the truth. I mean, I was going to like, we were going to have it out, okay? And then I started looking, and he was right about the margins. And he was right about the footnotes. And he was right about the indentions. So you know what I had? No grounds to stand on except for, that's just stupid. When our deeds, the secret, and the ones that are known, are known, made known, projected, shouted from the rooftops, that's not a stretch. Why? Jesus said he would. If your deepest, darkest secrets in your life, the things you've done good and the things you have done bad, were displayed on this screen today, could you stand here or sit here in this or would you shrink out because of shame? I know I would shrink out because of shame. We can blame other people all we want to, but in the last day, the one who has everything known and written, the great beyond intelligence of God, there's these books that are opened And the deeds will be, both good and bad, will be made known. And the judgment at this point will be sure. Why are the people judged? According to what they have done. The Bible is very clear. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not of other people, but of God. All of us seek other things than him naturally. We're all idolaters. We all run the other way. We all are like sheep who have gone astray. The Bible's very clear about our nature. And when the books are open, we will be judged for what we've done. And there'll be no excuse because we'll know we've done them. And the judgment will be right. Did you, did you break the law? Were you speeding? Yeah. Did you break the law? Did you lust? Yes. Did you break the law? Did you hate someone in your heart? Did you call your brother a fool? You're guilty of murder. Are you guilty? And the answer will be, there will be no way we can get out of it. There will be no amount of, of, they made me do this or this made me do that. You're not judged by your nature or your inclination. You're judged by what you've done. That is so frightening and scary and would be the end of the matter if not for verse 12 where it says, then I saw the great and small standing before the throne and the books were open. The books they're talking about are the ones over here, the books that have all of our deeds in them. However, then another book was opened. This is the 
this is the good book. This is not, not the good book in the Bible sense, but this is the book that you want to have your name written in. Because look what happens. All of those, all of those who only had their name written in this book with their deeds, they are destined for judgment in hell, this lake fire that never ends. But verse 15 says this, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But there were people whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. This appears several times in the book of Revelation. God is keeping track. He knows. One of the reasons he keeps track is it is such, our sin, even the lightest one, is such a great affront to his holiness. There was an episode of Seinfeld in which Elaine, one of the characters, had bought a cashmere sweater. And the whole time they're using the word cashmere. Okay, they're talking about it all the time. Well, this white cashmere sweater had one red dot on the right side of it. Okay? The whole episode is based on them giving this cashmere sweater to somebody and them going, hey, there's a red dot here. And it happens over and over and over again. And you think about, oh, if I had a couple hundred dollar cashmere sweater, I wouldn't mind if it had a red dot. But think about this. How much does that red dot stick out against the backdrop of holiness, against a backdrop that's completely white? Why do you think they put diamonds against a black backdrop? It's to show what it is, a one stain against the holiness of who God is. And you look in the Bible, he is holy, 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 set apart, set apart, set apart. One sin is, sticks out way, way more than the little dot would. It is a great, huge offense to a God. And all of those are recorded and written. And anybody whose name's in these other books and their deeds are done, they're guilty. However, there's this other book. Thank God there's another book. And when the other book is opened... If your name is in the book of life, you will not go to the second death. You will not suffer eternally in hell. You will not pay the consequences for the deeds you've done in the body. You know why? Because the Lamb's book of life, the book of life, the names are written there by the Lamb, the people who have trusted and the names of the people are those who have trusted in the Lamb of God, in Christ. You are either, either you're going to pay for your sins, or Jesus is going to pay for your sins, and you're going to trust that, and he's going to transfer your ledger to his. The deeds are there. Who could justify themselves? Who could be right in front of God? The answer is no one. But the glorious hope in this judgment that Christ is going to do away with sin, 
And he's going to punish the devil, his minions, and those who opposed him and never, rebe- and never trusted him. He's going to judge every sin and every person who is in sin. He's going to judge that unless your sins have been taken care of by Jesus in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And he has transferred your sins to his ledger. And now you are in this book. It's the Lamb's book of life. Now, what are the ramifications of this? I mean, they're far-reaching. The first one is this. We don't want to talk about this a lot, but fear can be a really good thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Book of Proverbs. Fear of poisonous snakes is good, right? Fear of spiders or that are poisonous. I don't know if that's good or not. My wife did that. She got a, there was a spider in our house the other day. Woo! I mean, just it was it was pretty big, but it wasn't that big. But fear, fear can be a good thing. Fear keeps us from jumping out of airplanes without parachutes. Fear keeps us from doing all, fear keeps us from driving around without seatbelts. Fear keeps us from doing so many different things that are good for us. Right? I want you to know something. Jesus is terrifying in these passages. Terrifying. He's in white. He's got this robe dipped in blood coming out of his mouth. as a two-edged sword. His eyes are like flames of fire. And he's coming to trample out the wrath of God. And he shows up, and then every one of our deeds is exposed, and every deed will be punished. That is totally terrifying. And it should be. It should be absolutely terrifying. So today, if you are here, you need to embrace the fear, especially especially those who are far away from Christ. His judgment is coming. It will be sure it will be what you deserve. Not more, not less. It will be exactly what you deserve. And an offense against the holy God merits an eternal destruction. And that fear should drive you to despair, and then despair gives way to hope. Do you know how this book ends? It ends with the author saying, come, come, come. See, it's not too late. It's not too late. You're hearing the word of God. You're hearing about your great sin. And you see that there is a great need. And that if you're lame and you're, you're judged by your deeds, you are in trouble. But there's this other book, thanks be to God, that he cracks open. And those people are just as guilty. But what happened is their sin has not been paid for by themselves. Their sin has been paid for by Jesus. And they've been transferred into the book of life. And because they're in the book of life, they have life. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter where you are, how far out you are, how much in sin you've ever been. Here's the good news. Right now, you can come. Ali Ali Oxenfree, come on home. Come. 
I don't, you are rightfully judged. You should be in fear and you should come. I never forget, it was on a Sunday. I got to preach. Um, I was a youth pastor and I got to preach in quote unquote big church, okay, for the, one of the first times. And I preached in big church and this guy came up and up front, and he wanted to talk to me about salvation. So we took him over to mom and dad's house. We had lunch over there, and his wife came with him. I explained the gospel to this guy, and it was amazing. It was like a million pounds lifted off of him. And we prayed together, and he trusted Christ, and it was a beautiful day. And then I turned to his wife, and I said, what do you, where are you in relationship to Christ? And she's like, man, I'm... Um, I'm interested, but I'm not sure. Well, I encouraged her to keep reading the scriptures. I encouraged her to keep coming to church, keep hearing the word. Encouraged her to keep to talk to her husband about it more. Then I also encouraged her this. I said, "I want you to know something. You are in severe danger." I'm not saying this in a jerk way, but you are in danger. As long as you have breath and long as Jesus tarries, there is still hope. But you are underneath the wrath of God, and it is true, and it is real, and it is just, and it is due. It's owed. But the wrath has been borne by the Lamb. And the Lamb says, come. And in the book of Isaiah, you can come without price. You can come without payment. You can come, you don't have any money, come and eat. You don't have anything to, anything to pay with, come, you can drink. That is what Jesus is like. You don't have anything to bring to the table. It's like the old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. We have nothing to bring. He has all the stuff for the party, we just gotta go in. It's like the prodigal. If you look at the, the parable that Jesus tells about the prodigal, this man leaves, he tells his father to die. The father represents, represents God. What happens? He runs off and he lives how he wants to live. And then he realizes his state and he runs back. And what does the father do? He says, oh, I'll take you back. You can live in the servants' quarters. No, the dude becomes undignified. He girds up his skirt thing he was wearing and he takes off and hugs the boy and says, it's time to party. The judgment is real, but the grace is evident. And there is a time when it will be too late. I don't know when that is. You don't either. He's coming. We don't know when, but he certainly is coming. He's going to judge. He will be right. You will be wrong. He is coming. But there is a day for you to come, and it's today. The second thing. I want you to know that we see out of this is there is motivation here. You ever get that time in your life where you're not feeling very motivated except for to eat chips and watch TV? You ever been there? You just feel like you wake up and you're like, mm, it ain't happening today. It's sweatpants, and if it gets too hot, it might be underwear, okay? I mean, it's <laughs> maybe a little too uh, self-reflective there or something. I don't know. It's coming that like, I have no motivation. Well, truth is a great motivator. Guilt's a poor one. It is a motivator, but it is a poor one. But truth is a great motivator. And the facts of Christ's coming 
the facts of his return, the facts of his rightful judgment, the facts of our sin, the fact of that we can come, the facts of, of this of all of this story that we've been told, we've been talking about of, of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration in Christ, in light of that, it gives us motivation. And this, the, the motivation we have first is to share Christ because there is a judgment coming. And how much do you have to hate someone not to want to warn them of the danger that is coming? And so we should warn. Now, I'm not I'm not advocating us going on the street corner with bullhorns and angry signs, okay? Because that's how some people believe you tell, you tell this story, but it is not. It comes through sacrifice and love and, and continually preaching the gospel. It doesn't come in any other way. So share this. This is true. If it's true, God put a, put a real smell of hell and fire and brimstone in our nostrils so that we know that those around us are perishing and that they need this good, no, good news, that their deeds are damning. But the grace of God is real and active, and it is something that we could come embrace the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and we could be transferred from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. And we should share that everywhere. And then finally, this is, my, this is the last point, and it just makes this all, all worthwhile. There is a, do you notice there is a sense of ought about justice in us? We see injustice everywhere. Let's look at both political parties and the injustices that they see, okay? On the right, you have this idea that refugees, they should not get the same benefits as American citizens. And there's outrage and there's anger about that. On the left side, it's people shouldn't have money, that much more money than the rest. And they're outraged about this. So there is a sense on both ends, both on the right and on the left, that we're getting hosed and we need justice, we all want that, not just in these political realms, but in other things. We've been wronged. What's we we got to have justice now. That guy, he cut down a tree that was on my property line. Justice. First off, just pump the brakes a little bit. You don't want justice now. Because especially in the, in the sense between you and God, because unless you're in Christ, justice is bad news. On the other hand, the idea that the ought and the want for us to seek justice points to the fact that we all do want God to judge sin. We just don't want him to judge our own. And when we, when we embrace the fact that we can be in Christ, that we are condemned and that we only hope we have is in him, it changes the game. And we do want to see justice, but we understand it in the right regards and realms, and we see it as something natural, something we can speak to anybody, anywhere, because everybody has the sense of injustice, but they don't understand how justice can, can certainly be served. And so here's the good news. Once we get all of that understood, it will lead us to forgiveness. Understanding the judgment of God will lead us to forgiveness. Why? The sin that someone has done against you they will either pay for, and God will know how to, how to do that correctly because he is the impartial, good judge. He'll take care of that on them or the evil sin, wickedness they did against you. If they're in Christ, he's already paid for it in Christ. So you don't have to worry about getting your comeuppance. 
You don't have to worry about them knowing my pain. You don't have to worry about them knowing the injustice. They will one day. It'll either be visited on their head for their deeds done, or what we pray for, what we hope for, what we long for, because we're all in the stage condemned, but we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and death and, and eternal hell to the kingdom of light by the great Son of God. What we want everyone everywhere is to have all of their deeds covered and paid for by the Son, Jesus. So when someone does this wrong, our natural inclination, inclination is what? You hit me, I hit you back. But not just hit you back, I want to hit you back with brass knuckles, okay? That's why the eye for an eye thing first even came in. We want justice to be served. It's something right and ought in us. We know that to be true. But when we come to Christ and we trust by faith that any injustice that was done to us, it will be paid for one day, that will open up the door for forgiveness. You don't believe me? Jesus on the cross, the greatest injustice all the time, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stephen, the martyr of the church we looked at, he preaches Jesus. All he does is preach to them, tells them about Christ, tells them about their sin, tell them about what he'd done. You know what they decide to do? We don't like that guy's words. Let's kill him. So they kill him, and as they're killing him by throwing rocks at him and bludgeoning him to death, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Don't hold this against them because they don't understand what they're doing. You can't forgive. Ultimately, if you think you still have to, that sin still has to be paid for. You have to trust God's good judgment. Either it was paid for by Christ or they will pay for it one day. And you don't trust your vengeance, but whose do you trust? The one who is right and good. We can forgive. One of the things that can derail a life, a church, a body of believers is unforgiveness. I've seen it personally in my own life and some unforgiveness I've harbored that God has had to work and chisel out in me. I've seen it in churches, unfortunately. And unforgiveness can be a cancer that eats us away. We need to be about sharing the gospel because judgment is coming. We also need to be about forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us because in so doing, we show the greatness of Christ's forgiveness that we owed we, were, uh, we are owed everlasting punishment, but we get, because of Christ and his grace, everlasting life. So on this Memorial Day, this weekend, you might need to make a phone call of forgiveness. You might need to first off go into a prayer closet and pray and seek God and say, God, help me to forgive. And I want to take this day and you want to pray because Memorial Day is a sign we remember those who have passed on. We want to pray and, 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 and plead with God to save those who are around us that we know who need the gospel because judgment is coming before they pass from this life to the next. So this is a call to pray. It's a call to forgive. It's a call to share. And it's a call to trust. I do this my son all the time. We were up at the playground the other day, and it had rained. And for some reason, Judson does not like to get wet or muddy. 
he's a little boy. I don't understand it. But and his mom's always telling him, "Go get money." I'm like, "You're an awesome mom." Yeah, go get money. He's like, "I don't want to." So we got. He climbs up. We're over here at the Hartsfield Park. He climbs up and he gets on the green slide and he starts to go down. And then he realizes it's like super wet. And he's like, oh, I don't want to go down the slide. But then he's caught in this conundrum, okay? There's this long ladder, and he's still not good at the back and down a ladder thing. And he's like, I'm going to fall off the ladder. And then the other way is like certain, oh, wetness, okay? <laughs> he's going to love that I told this story when he gets older, okay? And so I come to the, I come to the ladder, and I say, come here, Judson. And he's shaking at this point because he knows he's going to have to go down the ladder because the water is something he cannot abide. And so he's right there at the ladder, and I said, Judson, come here. I got you. Don't you trust me? I do, Dad. And he just jumped off, and I caught him. It would have been really bad if I had not, but I did. It really would have been. And I caught him, and I put him down, and he just ran off on his way. And it just made me think about that. Do we trust that God's going to get it right, that he's going to judge rightly, that he's going to do right by us, that he is going to do right. He's going to judge according to the sins, and not other than that. He is going to do right by us. He is right and good, and he is strong and powerful, and he will judge. I don't know when. I don't know how long. You don't either, but I do know something. He is good, no matter what. In the good times and the bads, in his judgment, he is right and just to judge. In his mercy and grace, he is beyond right and ju- just to do that because he's the one who paid the penalty. God is right. He is worthy of our full trust. Trust enough to forgive. Trust enough to share Christ. Trust enough to come to him forsaking other things. He is trustworthy. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your goodness in Christ. Thank you for all that you have done for us. And we pray that we would, we would know the fear of the Lord which leads to wisdom, that we would share Christ and we would forgive because Christ has forgiven us. We pray in the strongest name, the name above every name, the name that when, it, when you come, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We asked this time that our deacons would come down forward, and we are going to this time, and if our elders in the building come on up, uh, we're going to pass out our offering basket um, baskets, and as well as we're doing that, we have some, we'd like to recognize a couple of graduates, so, um, gra- oh, we got you both here, cool, cool. Uh, Christina Coker, if you come up, and Stephanie Tackett, if you would come up here, please. We would like to do a couple of things. These, these ladies have graduated from Trousdale High School. Yeah. There you go. Come on up here. We have we have gifts for you. And uh we're gonna pass these around. And we're gonna ask as a church body, right, what what are your plans? What are you gonna do after? Cool. She's going to TCAT, she's gonna be a nurse. This is Christina, she's gonna be a nurse. All right, what you got going on, Stephanie? Awesome. Lipscomb University major biology doctor stuff, it sounds like biology maybe. I don't know. Put you on the spot in front of everyone. Good. Good job, Matt. So uh, on the behalf of the elder team and, and the whole church here, we want to congratulate you, you ladies on a job well done graduating, and we wish you the best for your future. And we're going to have Tom actually voice a word of prayer for you, and then Kevin's going to give us some announcements. Join me in prayer. Um, God, I pray that you would open doors for them, uh, give them the minds that they need to uh, approach school and approach life, and that you would uh, use this season to...
hone them and to uh, make them into the tools that uh, you see fit for and put them in the situations that uh, you can use them in. And God, just pray that you would uh, make their eyes open to the good works that uh, you put before them. And just pray again that you would uh, lift these two girls up and uh, take care of them here as they pursue these next steps in this uh, very important time of life. In the name of Christ, we pray in.